0: Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. This episode is brought to you by our sponsors, Tonic Vibes and Ember Wave. You know, it sounds like you've had a very positive reaction from the public, from yeah. your loved ones uh, about your diagnosis and, and coping mechanisms, even from yes. your employer. Have you ever been in situations where, because you have an invisible condition, people just haven't understood or have have confronted you and you've been forced to justify that, that you know, well, I've got this condition, so... yeah.
1: Yeah, no, there have been. Um, so one one incident springs to mind, um, and that was – so my my dad had had a knee operation mm. um, quite a few years ago now, and I, I was the one who was picking him up from the hospital. And when I arrived there, I'd said to the nurse, because my dad wasn't able to walk, he was in a wheelchair, they put him in a wheelchair, and um, I'd said to the nurse – can I have some help so that, you know, to take dad to the car? Mm. And she looked at me and she was just like, you're young. It, it was literally, you're young, fit and healthy. Why aren't you pushing him yourself? Mm. And I actually, I explained to her, I said, look, I'm not able to push him myself because I didn't feel that, particularly in that environment, where you're in a healthcare environment, I didn't feel that I should have to explain. no but she refused to accept it. So I just turned around and I said, look, I have multiple sclerosis. I'm not, I can't, cannot push my dad all the way to the car park mm. I'm going to have to get somebody to, to come and help. Otherwise he's going to be sat here for the rest of the day because I'm the only one here to take him home. Mm. And then at that point, she then said, oh, okay, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. But I felt that if somebody has asked for help, Generally, why? why question it why question it because yeah. people don't ask generally don't ask for that kind of help well it's so hard to do in the first place exactly exactly yeah. so you know and I think I'm I'm becoming much more confident in you know in being able to explain to people um also because you know not just my sister but I've also known other people with inflammatory bowel disease as well, and. I remember confronting. So I was out at the theatre with a friend of mine who has um, who has Crohn's. Mm. He he was having a bad day. With the show had finished, and he said, "I'm just going to go and find the toilet." And he asked the um, the usher, "Can you tell me where the nearest disabled toilet is?" And the guy's very words were, "You can't use that. You're not in a wheelchair." And my poor friend was bursting i could so i i'm very perceptive i can see now in somebody's face where they're in that complete panic mm. i have to get to a toilet now so i said to him i said to him i said look you go and get find the toilet i'm going to sort this out and then basically gave this guy something like a 20 minute lecture good on disabilities and how you know if you know they Especially in a customer-facing um, environment, people shouldn't be making judgments like that. Because again, if somebody is in that situation and they've specifically asked where the toilet is, don't question it. Don't question it. Exactly. They're not asking to be awkward, or because they just want to, you know, skip a queue. Yeah. There is likely to be a very good reason for it. Mm. But you know, I, you know, I've seen it you know people looking at it when you know you so in the UK you have these um toilets which are um, opened by what's called radar keys hmm. locked disabled toilets and you can um basically uh, get this radar key it's um either through your health care providers or oh. you can from certain um providers online oh, which wow. access and it's basically is to stop Key, you know just the general public going in and, and using it because only you know people who need them are, are given these keys um but I've seen people looking at you know at either me or you know for example my sister when you walk out and they're like but they're not in a wheelchair so why are they using that
0: that expectation of a wheelchair is the visible exactly marker of of disability is so frustrating in our exactly. invisible community you know exactly. it's, it's just it's yeah. Getting people to understand that that disability looks very different than different. I mean of course it's people in wheelchairs, but it 's more than just that, well, that
1: yeah so when I, so I, I mentioned that I always book special assistance when yeah. one of the oh, the most common things that I get, particularly when i 'm flying with my mom so i 'll always wait until everyone else has has got off because it 's just easier for me, particularly if i 'm fatigued. I don't want people think, thinking, "Oh gosh, she's going so slow, and you've got a queue behind you." Um, and we'll get off, and there will usually be somebody waiting with the wheelchair just outside the, the plane.
0: Mm.
1: The number of times people have automatically gone to my mum, who is she's in she's seventy, and said, "Oh, we have your wheel, the wheelchair for you." Mm. Actually, it's for me, and they'll just look at me. i just like. No, no, it's for me, and so I, I actually travel with um, with MS stickers stuck to my hand luggage and to my bags. Wow. Um, but I, th- I think actually that's that's quite judgmental. Yeah, In fact, you're just assuming that it's for the person who you know might look older. Um. So, and I think there's there's still a huge need for more awareness to be to be raised because i'm within this community i'm very aware of it and i you know i hear people being you know abused you know verbally abused for using disabled spaces in car parks because people have said they don't look disabled enough to use a disabled space you know i've heard people you know talk about for example um where you've got um, you know it's particularly um, when you have people for example on the autistic spectrum mm. you know they to all intents and purposes physically they there's absolutely nothing wrong you know they look absolutely fine
0: mm.
1: but they may have sensory issues anxiety issues it might be that um, they might be non-verbal yep so you know if you ask them a question and they don't answer Well, people could very well just assume, oh, God, they're being really rude. And I know that that has happened to people that I know from within, you know, this, our community Mm. happened before because people have just made assumptions and that I think it needs to change. You know, it should, you should always give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't automatically assume they're using a disabled space because they just don't feel like walking or they, you know, they're being boarded first because, you know, they can't be bothered to to wait or they're using a disabled toilet because they don't want to wait in queues. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. It does, but it's a very, I believe it's a very small minority of people who Mm. then end up making it difficult for the vast majority of us who do actually genuinely need to use, those those services absolutely
0: well so we've we've talked about you know um perception of of disability why don't you tell us more specifically about the advocacy work you're doing because obviously you know your diagnosis has completely changed your life for the better in the sense that it's given you all these opportunities to speak to different groups of people so please tell us about (laughs) what your work is like
1: so I um, so I collaborate with multiple stakeholders. So by that I mean, so I work with um, pharmaceutical companies, medical device firms, digital health companies. I work with clinicians. I work with healthcare systems. So, for example, if it's in the UK, it's with the NHS. Mm-hmm um i work with individual patients um so uh, and patient organisations and patient charities mm. um and then with um with regulators as well so it's about i very much believe it's about everyone coming together because we're all working towards the same thing but we're just coming at it from from different angles and i think it's really important to Realize that in order for things to improve, we are going to have to collaborate. Mm -hmm. So, uh, even with, for example, the pharmaceutical companies that I work with, I don't work with anyone exclusively. For me, it's about actually we need to make sure that everyone is moving forward. And the same with, so I'm an ambassador and patron for several charities health-related and disability-related charities.
0: Including the MS Society in the UK, right? Including
1: the MS Society, and also, um, so um, there's a couple of MS um, therapy centres, so you've got the Chiltern's MS Centre and the Cambridge, um, Peterborough and Huntingdon MS Therapy Centre, but they're also patron for ADD, um, ambassador for ADD International, Mm. which, is a disability activist empowerment um, charity, and that's international. So it's about empowering disability activists, um, particularly in Africa and Asia, Mm. where there is very, you know, there's a very little support available for people with disabilities, but also they're, they're not necessarily empowered to be able to get change to happen. Right. Um, and I'm also a patron for Paradance UK, mm. national body for um, for inclusive dance, essentially. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, I always, again, so whenever I'm asked to become a patron or an ambassador for a charity, one of the first things I'll always say to them is that I can't be an ambassador or a patron exclusively your particular organization because I believe that each of the organizations that I' I'm linked to all have a particular place within this environment so mm. to speak um, to make sure that you know like I said people who have long-term conditions um, that their needs are being put at the center of everything that is being is being done. Mm -hmm. Um, so some of the things that I do include well so I've already mentioned obviously speaking conferences and events and I do lots of media interviews and I do lots of writing Mm -hmm. also do things like I co-create information and services so um, for example I'm currently working on a patient support program an online patient support program which is um Completely, it's not linked to any drugs. So, a lot of the patient support programs that are out there are linked to specific drugs. So, you only join that support program if you happen to be taking a drug by that
0: particular company, which can be limiting for people who really want general support.
1: Exactly. So, um, I'm currently working with a an online health community Hmm. to produce this online support program for people with MS, and it will be about um Support and day-to-day living, so mm-hmm. like you know, navigating the healthcare system, um, looking at diet, exercise, symptom management, um, how to have better conversations with your healthcare team, and all that kind of stuff, which is applicable to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're obviously you're on a treatment. Yeah. So. Working on things like that, but then also um, I do a lot of review work as well, so anything which is patient facing mm-hmm. um, consultancy to make sure that so if, if it's for example i'm reviewing content and information, making sure that it's relevant and it's useful and that the language that has been used is understandable um, and that,
0: inclusive
1: inclusive that the tone of language is correct i remember reviewing um, content for um a it was actually for a pharma company it was for their website and they were producing disease awareness content mm. um, and i remember reviewing it and the tone of language and some of the words that they had used was really patronizing mm. and especially if it's coming from a pharma pharma company they also need to be really careful because, you know, just generally the patient community, you know, is, is a bit wary
0: yeah. of
1: you know, information that comes out of pharma because they think, oh, is it going to be biased? Are they just, you know, saying this because they want us to take their drug and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. So I had to go back to this particular company and say, well, look, you know, if you come across as being patronizing, that's actually not going to do much for your reputation within the patient community. Mm-hmm. and. And they were so thankful. And they said, oh, actually, we didn't even realise when it was being written that it could come across like this. Yeah, Which is why it's so important to get, you know, people involved who, you know, have that knowledge of the various patient communities, um, but also who have the skills and the experience to be able to advise and consult. Mm. Um, You know, I've consulted on, you know, campaigns, um on you know events so sometimes it's it's sometimes it's the simplest things so i remember i was working with one company um, and they wanted to put on a focus group um this was for patients from all disease areas it was a um they wanted people who were um who had been involved in clinical trials Mm. and i remember saying to them because they would given me an outline of when they wanted this focus group to be and where they wanted it to be. And I said, well, have you thought that if people are going to be traveling, you don't really want people traveling during rush hour, for example, because if they have mobility difficulties, then traveling during rush hour, you know, isn't going to be an option unless you're going to pay for taxis. Because, you know, try going on the, the London Underground at rush hour, you know, that's hard enough if you don't have a disability, um, or things like you know, if, if you know so, and many people, if they when they take their medications, it has to be at around meal times. Mm. So it make the timing of the focus group make, make it outside of a meal time. So make it, say, two, three o'clock rather than midday, and then expect people to skip their lunch, sort of thing. So you know. Thinking about things like that, I think it's it comes naturally wow. now, you know, to somebody who has a long-term condition, which if you've not got experience with that, it's not necessarily something you think about. Yeah. But it can make a huge difference. So I remember at the end of that particular focus group, so many people actually fed back to the company and said, This is the first time that anybody's ever actually thought about the timing or no. the you know thought about the venue and you know we love doing this and if you're going to do another one then I'll happily be involved
0: oh isn't that
1: great they the company was obviously you know really happy yeah other people who took part were happy because they felt as though they contributed and that there was an opportunity to contribute more rather than them going away feeling like oh gosh that was that was really hard Mm -hmm. and by the end of it and was it really worth it and you know i'm not sure i'll take part in something like like this again so having that involvement by you know people who really understand mm. such a difference yeah um, so you know i love it when organizations come to me and they say look we've got this idea can you help us bring it to fruition to make sure that it's going to be what patients want what patients care about because that's really important as well. There's no point in you know an organisation saying, "Oh, we've got this fantastic, fantastic idea for a campaign," but actually the patient community that they're aiming it at really doesn't care about that particular issue. So you know, it's it's about you know making sure things are relevant and useful. So you know, like I said, that we all are all moving forward together. Um, in in the right way and also in a transparent and a fair way
0: Mm.
1: is for a long time patients have been seen as this sort of added value extra and not an integral part of this the process absolutely exactly and that that needs to change and that comes from you know every single person within an organisation that is engaging with patients and patient communities, it's going to come from the top, so the executive management, mm-hmm. um, but it's also going to come from you know, the patients and patient communities themselves turning around and saying, actually, we need to be valued for our time, our experience, our skills. Yeah. We need to be valued properly, just in the same way that healthcare professionals are. Absolutely. If I'm, you know, I might be asked to, um, you know, I don't know, so there have been times when I've been asked to do things, um, so share a platform with a healthcare professional on a certain topic. Mm. Just because they have a medical degree um, and they're coming at it from one angle, a, a certain angle, doesn't mean that the angle that I'm coming at it from and the experience I bring. It doesn't mean that it's worth any less. Yeah. I think in the past that has been the the perception.
0: Um, Well, it's that disability is other or that a patient is other. It's like that we're not part of the larger community, but actually like, hey, guys, we are. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. This episode is sponsored by Tonic Vibes. Tonic offers CBD blends that use organic sun-grown hemp flower from their family-run farm in upstate New York. Their original formulations were first developed by Tonic's founder, Brittany Carbone, to help manage her own anxiety and depression. Combining plant-based ingredients like ashwagandha, black seed oil, lemon balm, and passionflower, their soulfully crafted botanicals work synergistically with CBD to restore our body's essential balance. The magic is in the love and intention that goes into their products from seed to shelf. My favorite? Chronic Tonic, a roll-on for aches and pains that I keep in my purse go to tonic vibes that's tonic V-I-B-E-S, dot com, and enter code invisible at checkout for 15% off
1: advocacy is is changing hugely yeah. and the the skills and the experience that particularly what I call the the sort of top level of patient advocates where I so I call them the pro patients where the ones who are, who are now working beyond their own patient communities and they're looking at the systemic issues, so things like literacy, digital health, access to, you know, general access to healthcare systems and all of that, you know, you don't go to university and decide I'm going to graduate and become a patient advocate. You're not trained to do this. So the people who are doing this, we're, we're training ourselves Yeah. It's a huge amount of time and effort that goes in. Every time I'm asked to present at a conference, I do hours' worth of research, background reading. And that's all being done in my spare time. Yeah. All self-taught. And that in itself, I think it needs to be recognised
0: much more. Um, and well, you have, I mean, luckily you have been recognized in some ways because you have won quite a few awards. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> Feel so free to toot your own horn on that one and tell us. Yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, but that's what I think is wonderful because we're seeing people like you get recognized on a larger yeah. scale, right? So, like, that's where it's, like, where there's still change that needs to happen. It's starting. The sea change has begun. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. definitely. And I think what the next step is that the particularly with industry, mm. the, the, the things like standard operating procedures, the infrastructure of companies, mm. um, that all needs to make it much easier for, to w- collaborate with, with individual patient advocates. I think there is certain infrastructure which is there now to collaborate with patient organisations. But I think the ne- that next step is recognising the value of individual patient advocates and making it much easier to to work with them, particularly in Europe. Because obviously in Europe, there is a very different set of regulations as to how industry can collaborate with patients to what is obviously in the the US. Um, And I mean we're moving in the right direction. We're definitely not there yet. And every so often I'll come across somebody in industry who will say, you know, something, and um, this has actually happened. I was, on a, I was on a panel and we were talking about patient involvement in the, um, in the design of clinical trials.
0: Hmm.
1: And this lady um, just sat there and her very words were, patients shouldn't be involved in the design of clinical trials because they don't have medical degrees and they're not trained to do this. Oh no. I know. So every so often you will still come across people like, you know, who say things like that and you think, okay, we've still got some way to go.
0: Yeah. We need to broaden our horizons more.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, and yeah, like I said, so I actually said I was actually speaking about this at a conference the other week, and I was saying if you look at the characteristics of patients 30 to 40 years ago, mm. they're very different. The characteristics of patients now,
0: yeah,
1: that's to do with just that was the way things were going to go. Whether it's to do with the the availability and the accessibility of health information now with the internet, and I um, and
0: the mental health aspect of that too, which and is very health
1: Exactly. Um, I think the the patient advocacy movement in HIV really paved the way. But well, that's way a really that, good point. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I don't think you know, say you know, forty years ago or so, patient, the characteristics of patients wouldn't necessarily have been suited to the type of patient advocacy we have now. Yeah. Um, was you know, as patients are becoming more informed and they're becoming more vocal about their rights and what they know they should and should, you know, should be able to access, um, and the channels that are now available. I mean, the advent of social media is huge, yeah. You, know, you could run, uh, you know, a, a campaign to get access to a certain drug just through social media and quite easily gain thousands and thousands of
0: of followers. Well, and I think even just about individually about your social media feed, for instance, because I found you because of social media. <laughs> this has been happening yeah. so much more in terms of the people who I'm finding on the sh- to be on the show. But yeah. also you show on your feed a mix of your everyday life where you're like going to a Zumba class, yeah. you know, and of the work you're doing and how you're fitting that into your lifestyle. So you're yeah. really getting a full picture of a human being. And not just from the MS perspective, but from the perspective of your whole life, you're giving a picture. Of course, you know, there are ways to filter that information on social media too, which can be, that has its pluses and minuses. But when you're that open about what's going on, you know, hour to hour, day to day, it can be really informative.
1: Yeah. And it's something which, when I decided that I was going to use social media as a vehicle, that's something that I I really thought about. I thought I don't want it to just be about my MS because I'm not just my MS, and I think it's really important for not just you know the people around me. So you know, for example, my friends who may not see me as often and things like that. But I think it's also really important for the the people that I collaborate with, the stakeholders that I collaborate with within that healthcare space. Mm. But then also remember. I'm still a person with a condition who is trying to manage day to day. Yeah. Um, And I think that again becomes really important because it's when you see somebody and you, you know, you usually see them on their good days because, you know, let's be honest, who who does go out when they're having a bad day, you know, whether or not they have a long-term condition, it's easy for them to forget, you know, they, they, they know that I'm Trishna who goes and I speak at conferences all over Europe and I do Zumba and when they see me speaking or, you know, I'm having a meeting, for example, with a, a pharma company, mm. you know, there's preparation that has gone behind that. So I think it's important to, to re, reassert that and make sure people are remembering that it is you're just you're trying to get through day to day um, and as such anything that other people can do to make that easier will you know will help so you know I, I have a I have a group of friends who when they go out now they I say look Trishna, if you if you're free and you want to come out with us we'll make sure we do it in an area that is local to you isn't that nice that's so thoughtful Exactly, which that makes you know that makes a difference. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've I've lost friends. We all you know, something which anyone with a long-term condition will probably be able to relate to because there are people in my life who won't make that effort. But then, you know, you think, well, okay, that's just the way it is.
0: And But that, that also, that would happen whether or not you have a long term exactly. condition, wouldn't it? Because there's a certain point in your life when your really close friends stay your close friends and the ones yeah. who are just sort of hangers on or that you're hanging on to, you're able to let it go and really just focus on the very meaningful, deep relationships.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I think having people see that, And also how I, for example, cope when I'm doing events. So I remember, you know, I remember posting one photo and it was during, um, I think it was during one of the congresses or something. I had a really long day. I remember posting a photo from my bed in the hotel Mm -hmm. and I was interested and it was literally, you know, a few hours ago I was presenting to how many, you know, however many people And now I'm in my bed and I'm recovering because I'm so exhausted. And I think, again, it's important for people to see that because I don't want people to think that, you know, life is easy with a long-term condition because it's not. What I want people to see is that it can be made easier when you have the right support and understanding around you. And the only way that people can offer that is if they fully understand what you're going through and what... Are th- what are the issues that you're facing and the challenges
0: that, you, that you're facing. Um, and the only way they're going to understand that is if we keep talking about it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've covered so much, Trishna, and I like to wrap up my interviews with a couple yeah. of top three lists. Yep. And I wondered if you could give us your top three tips for someone who is maybe waiting on an MS diagnosis or has just been diagnosed at, or even is just looking at possibly beginning a life in the invisible conditions arena what would you recommend they do what are your top three tips so my top three tips would be firstly don't google (laughs) that comes up a lot
1: yeah yeah don't google so if you're going to look for information look for um look for resources which are reliable so talk to healthcare professionals also talk to people who are in the various patient um, support groups on, for example, Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and say, where are the reliable sources of information and also the understandable sources of information? Because the last thing you want to do is read a whole load of information that you don't understand <laughs> and go away thinking, well, actually, that's been really scary because if I'm not understood, then it must be really bad. Right. Um, so, yeah, I would say that. So look for reliable sources of information. Don't be scared to ask for help, mm. which we've spoken about a lot. Yeah. Difficult. But you will very quickly realise who are the people in your life who will be there for you through the, the good and the bad um, because they're the ones who won't question when you're asking for help. Um, and it can bring a whole load of new positivity to your life with a with a long-term condition. Oh, and the other thing is there's no right or wrong way to cope. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So often people, um, people will often contact me over social media and they will say things like, um, you know, I'm feeling like this. Is this right? Should I feel this angry? Should I feel this frustrated? Or conversely, they're like, I feel like actually nothing's changed. And should I actually be feeling something different? Mm. I always say to people, there is no right or wrong way. You have to find your own path. And when I go out and I tell my story, the first thing I will always say is it's not about me saying that there is a certain way of doing things. It's about finding inspiration. From other people with the condition so you know people that I for example I follow on social media the people who I've met through my advocacy work I take inspiration from them and how they coped with whichever you know long-term condition they have whether it's MS or whether it's something else and there may be nuggets of you know of information and ways that they've been able to cope, which could then help me. It's not that I'm going to look at somebody and think, oh gosh, I have to follow that exact path. Yeah. It's not about that. And I think that's really important for people to remember because each individual, we're all individuals. As human beings, we're individuals, as people with long term conditions, with invisible or visible disabilities. We're all still individual in that, you know, in that area. So, you know, for example, if you have an somebody who um, is an amputee, they're not necessarily going to have exactly the same path as somebody else who is an amputee. No two people with MS are the same, and it's about remembering that. So, the way that you cope is going to be completely individual. What is important is that you get the right support for the way that you're coping so whether that's accessing professional mental health support and services whether it's about making sure that your family is aware of what you're going through so that they can support you um but don't feel that you have to you know have to you know emulate somebody else because
0: you don't and conversely if you're finding inspiration from someone who you're following on social media or someone you've made contact with and they're giving you good suggestions be open to trying those things too maybe yes yeah
1: definitely definitely and also let them know mm-hmm. so i you know it it makes i love it when people contact me and they've said you know that particular vlog that you did really helped me Or, you know, like I said, when I did Strictly Come Dancing, people, you know, contacted me me, and they said that inspired them. I had one lady contact me and said it had inspired her to try a body combat class. Wow. You know, she has MS and and she never would have thought about trying that. And that, that, for me, that's nice for me as well because I feel that actually. Nourishing. You know, it is. It is, and you feel like you're making a difference, and you are helping people. Because also, what can sometimes happen with social media is that you know you feel like you're putting your life out there, and then think, well, is it actually making a tangible difference to the people that you're trying to reach? So when people do contact me and say that it is, that you know, that's nice for me as well, and that gives me a boost. And you know, that if I'm having a slightly bad day it can turn my day around so about you know is it is a two is definitely a two-way thing
0: and about having open communication which you know is a huge part of when you get a diagnosis starting to tell people and starting to you know tell yourself
1: give yourself permission
0: to exist in a new way yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So my other top three list is obviously, and and you mentioned this from the very beginning. You've had to make lifestyle adjustments, um, you know, to to manage your symptoms. And I'm wondering yeah. if you have a top three, like whether it's a guilty pleasure, a secret indulgence, or um, a comfort activity that you do when you're having a flare. Um, what are your top three go tos that that give you joy? So.
1: I I love spending time outdoors mm. so being outside in nature or even just out in the garden and so I find I find that very nourishing yeah um I I enjoy um just spending so I've learned how to enjoy spending time at home and mm. That's, that might sound really
0: strange. No, it doesn't to me, but it might to people who aren't in our community.
1: Well, <laughs> no, yeah. Well, so I, t- the, I tell you what it is. So, I've always, you know, I've always been very busy, and you know, I've enjoyed going out and, like I said, very physically active, playing hockey and so. So, you know, at the weekends, I was always out and about, mm. and particularly in the last few years, as my fatigue has worsened, it's actually got to the weekend and. I can't manage to you know go out in London to you know go out dance all night sort of thing so I've learned to appreciate being at home and watching a movie you know with family and enjoying it rather than thinking oh I'm only doing this because I can't do actually what I really want to be doing so and you know now it you know it gets the weekend and you know if I know that I'm going to struggle to be going out it gets to the weekend I think oh which movie am I going to watch this weekend <laughs> you know I think again that that's really important is to enjoy and also to appreciate spending time on yourself yeah. because I think we do that enough I don't think I think it's uh, it's very often there's this mis- conception that you're being selfish yeah. if you're spending time on yourself and doing things which are right for you. Mm. Um, so I you know I think that's that's all really important. I think the third thing is um exercise as much as you can and within your and within what you're capable of doing at that particular time. So I'm very much um, involved in inclusive exercise. So one of the dance classes that I do is actually my my sister is an inclusive. The one with ulcerative colitis, she's an inclusive dance instructor. Oh wow! Yeah, which she does in her spare time. Um, she has a regular full time job, but in her spare time, she's an inclusive dance instructor. Mm. And you know, it's about doing what's within your capabilities because when you exercise physiologically you release endorphins mm. so it can make you feel good even if you might be going through a particularly bad time so it might, you know don't get me wrong there are some days I literally I, I have to drag myself out yeah because I might be having a bad day with my fatigue or you know my bladder has been playing up and it's just really frustrated me but when I'm exercising, I know that when I stop, I'm gonna feel really great because all those chemicals and endorphins are going around your body anyway. Um, so I think that's really that's really important. Mm. And I you know, I don't believe anyone who says that there isn't an exercise out there for them.
0: Mm.
1: It's just about finding what is right for you and what you enjoy. You know, I believe that people should find an exercise that they enjoy so much that they don't feel like they're exercising. Exercise shouldn't be a chore. Yeah. You know, when I'm at my, my Zumba and dance classes, the hour flies by and I'm having so much fun. The fact that I'm burning calories, it's just, I, f- I forget about it because it doesn't feel like, you know, exercise. Whereas if you, you know, I'm the kind of person, if you put me into a gym and stick me on a treadmill, I just... I get really, really bored. And I that for me is, that's, you know, some form of, you know, torture. Sort <laughs> of. Because, you know, I look at my watch and I'll be like, I must have done this for at least half an hour and it's like five minutes. yeah And that's because it's not the right exercise for me. Whereas I know other people who love that. And, you know, and that's what's right for them. So, you know, to find an exercise um, which... You know, like I said,
0: you don't you don't feel like you're working. Yeah, for me that's Pilates because it. it, Oh, is it? I love the reformers because it lets me lie down. I feel fully supported, and then I get a fantastic workout. You know, and it's just it's finding the thing that that makes you want to keep coming back. Exactly, exactly.
1: You know, the days when I know that I have I have dance and zumba, I look forward to it for the entire.
0: isn't that great Uh,
1: yeah and I think that's that's how people should be exercising it shouldn't be seen as a chore it should be as something which we know is good for our health but can also be such a fun thing to do that you know people do look forward to it and you know they don't mind doing it
0: yeah Absolutely. Well, Trishna, it has been such a pleasure meeting you and talking to you today. And um, I'm really excited to continue to follow your work. This episode is sponsored by Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm, and because you listen to Uninvisible, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com/invisible. That's e m b r labs.com and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at Uninvisible Pod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.